mental health can become a really complicated area but actually it's a really simple formula like we know exactly what solves all of this the documents are there the research is there we know what we need to do to start solving this education prevention services support research we have it all there the formula is there it's just about someone knocking on the big black number 10 door and going hello this report exists or this is an area that we can do let's train our staff in mental health first aid incredibly cost-effective thing to put forward hi hurt to healing listeners and welcome back to season four with me pandora morris i can't believe it's been nearly a year since i started having these incredibly raw and honest conversations with wonderful guests from all walks of life about their own invisible mental health struggles Those of you that have been here since the start will know that I myself have struggled with mental health for many years and it was only recently that I started to see some glimmers of light. As part of my own recovery, I've made it my mission to start this podcast to create a safe space where I could try and help some of you on your own healing journeys. This season is full of more fantastic conversations and I hope that hearing these will provide a bit of solace and comfort for some of you. On today's episode, I am joined by Ben West, a passionate mental health advocate and a campaigner who has faced unimaginable challenges following the tragic suicide of his brother. Ben shares his heart-wrenching story, recounting the painful experience of giving his brother CPR in a desperate attempt to save his life. The trauma of that fateful day has left an indelible mark on Ben's life, yet his journey through grief and loss has also been a profound teacher. Through his own experiences, Ben has become a huge advocate for mental health awareness and education. He passionately emphasizes the importance of equipping individuals with the knowledge and tools to recognize and address mental health issues. In this raw and honest conversation, Ben inspires us with his resilience and determination to ensure that no one suffers in silence and that we will all have the capacity to help and support each other in times of need. His mission is a powerful call to action for us all to prioritize mental well-being and to foster a community of understanding and compassion. Will you tell us about the reason that you became a mental health advocate and the tragedy that you sadly had to endure? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, the fact that I'm sitting here on a talking about mental health and, and you know, I've been working in mental health for almost six years now is is just bizarre to me throughout most of my life I didn't know what it was and that was true until September 2017 when my brother Sam was diagnosed with clinical depression and at the time I'd never heard of that before I remember my mum telling me look Sam's been diagnosed with clinical depression and it went in one ear out the other I honestly had no idea she might she might have well have sat me down and said Sam has been a bit sad lately that's how much I, I thought I gave it never spoke to him about it it was never really brought up again um and in january 2018 sam took his own life um he was 15 years old my mum found him i was my dad was at work so i had to do cpr and it was just the most awful 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 ending to that whole saga and that was really when i found out what mental health was and I sort of found out in the worst way possible how bad depression can actually be and I I always tell that and I'm like I was told like so many times I'm asked a question of like what are the things you can look out for like I didn't I was told he had the worst form of depression he was clinically unwell 
I never understood what that meant until the moment I opened that door and I saw that I struggled with for a very long time. And I guess, you know, I'm still here. I'm working as a mental health campaigner. I feel like I'm in too deep to get out. (laughs) (laughs) But I absolutely love it. You know, Sam was 15. No 15 year old should be thinking about what he was thinking about and going through what he went through. And I'm completely determined to work until other 15 year olds don't have to go through the same thing. And you say there were no signs. There was absolutely, I mean, obviously, apart, aside from being diagnosed with depression, there was no overt, obvious red flag that you would now, in retrospect, be able to look back and think, hmm. Yeah, it's really difficult because, I mean, obviously, he was displaying all of the signs to get diagnosed. So he was really, really sad. He was secluded. He, he'd isolate himself. He, he was going through depression. He had depression. But I guess from an outsider, from my point of view, trying to distinguish what was a red flag and what was something scary and something that it should be looked out for and what was just normal 15-year-old behaviour. Because let's face it, what 15-year-old wants to skip downstairs and play happy families? Like, we don't, right? So trying to determine what was normal and what wasn't at the time was really, really hard. And obviously, he he would confided in my mum and he'd talk to the GP and managed to get a diagnosis and managed to get treatment. But as his brother, like, I just thought, what are you doing? You're just being such a... I mean, just so annoying, right? That's how I interpreted it. Like I'd lost this kid that I'd grown up with that was really funny to be around and he'd suddenly not been like that. And actually, to be honest, I, I found it quite annoying. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously what happened happened and that left me with an enormous amount of guilt for finding it annoying and not being the older brother and helping him out. But it was so difficult. But now looking back, you know, having worked in this space and learned a lot, so obvious, mm-hmm. so obvious. The night he died, he we were having dinner, me, my mum, Sam and Tom. Um, and he was just pushing his food around the plate. I mean, he was <laughs> he was just not himself. Uh, and forget the risk signs of suicide. If someone's not themselves, ask the question, are you okay? And it never even occurred to me. And I guess that fuels back into my work now of like the guilt I felt was so misplaced because you can only do what you're taught to do and what you have the understanding to do. I had absolutely no idea that any of that was the signs that he was about to die. How was it finding him? I mean, that must have for you. I mean, do you get you know, post-traumatic stress from from seeing that and from you know doing CPR? You said you had a broken rib, didn't you, or yeah. something at the time, and yet your adrenaline kicked in, so you just didn't even feel the broken rib and you just carried on and going and going and going I guess and look I tell this story because I just think it's so important we talk about suicide like it's just something that happens we talk about it as just it comes up in the statistics every year 5,500 people died or you know 30 kids died this year and you're just like I tell this story and I talk so openly about that night in particular because it is one of the worst things you'll ever experience. I mean, talk about post-traumatic stress, had that in bucket loads. You know, I have nightmares that that are just excruciating that actually cause its own post-traumatic stress on, on their own. I've been working for five years on trauma therapy, trying to get through it. It's enormous. I got a message actually on LinkedIn the other day from a one of the police officers that attended um, our call that night. And he said, I just wanted to let you know that every year around in winter, I can't stop thinking about attending your house and your call. And he said he actually left the police because he couldn't deal with it. Like he wasn't even part of the family. 
and he, the trauma to him has had a lasting impact for the last six years in his life. Like, that's the level. That's what we're talking about when we talk about suicide. It is absolutely horrific to deal with. And let's not forget, this is a 15-year-old boy. That's no position to, you'd want. We don't want to say that. But no, that night was horrible, absolutely horrible. And I guess the only silver lining I can take out of it now, looking back, is I'm really glad I got to do CPR. Like it's an awful, awful thing to have to do to anyone. And I'm sure there'll be people listening because it actually happens quite a lot, you know. But it's an awful thing to do. But actually, in its own way, I've framed it as it's an incredibly loving thing to do. Like it's a very, very, very intimate moment with someone. Literally keeping them alive until the incredibly impressive air ambulance and all their staff and the ambulance service can do what they do. Like it's incredibly intimate. And I guess a lot of my guilt following Sam's death was was I good enough as an older brother? Was I loving enough? And now I framed it as I've done the most loving thing you can do is kneel beside someone and try force yourself for a broken rib to try and bring them back to life. Like, I guess that was such an amazing buffer to the guilt that I was feeling. Um, so mixed emotions, but just incredibly traumatic. And I just struck me that police officer of like, this just goes beyond me. I mean, if it's literally impacting the life of a man that stood downstairs and I'm not even sure went into the room that much. I imagine what it what it's like for me, my mum, the air ambulance folk, the ambulance service, the poor police officer. Like it just the ripple effect is so huge. And that's why I tell it so honestly because I'm like, we can't ever lose sight of just how awful it is. How did you deal in the immediate aftermath? I mean what happened oh. in in the family? Weird, weird zone. And you say there about verging into the campaigner side of me, right? I mean, I remember we had this awful thing happen and all we got given was a media liaison officer. <laughs> it's laughable now. I mean, a media liaison officer. We've just gone through the mo- one of the most traumatic things you could ever go through. And they were like, careful of the journalists that might camp out on your lawn, as if they would do that. And so to think about like surviving at despite the odds you know it's it's I guess for me it was just this period of complete numbness and looking back it's a complete blur I'm very lucky that I had amazing family that was very lucky to sort of bounce inwardly I guess if that makes sense I had amazing friends that I guess I was lucky I was at school as well because I don't have to tell anyone school tells everyone then they sort of pick up the pieces and I had amazing friends that were like well, let's do something. Plenty of nights spent crying in the back seats of someone's car and friends that sort of rallied around me and went, what, what do you want to do next? How do you turn this into something positive? And actually started me on the campaigning route. But yeah, coping in the first few months, it wasn't necessarily coping. It was just surviving. Um, it was just doing whatever I could to get through. I hate work. I hated A-levels. And I remember vividly emailing all my A-level teachers being like, can I have the uh, lesson notes from earlier? And I'm like, that is ridiculous. Like, Ben, come on. That's the most un-me thing. I was just desperate for anything that gave me a little bit of an escape from what was going on. Um, but it was just surviving. And then I guess when you get through that initial shock period, you can start thinking about where do I go from here? And obviously campaigning has been one of the best things I've ever done for coping with it and processing things. Talking, I was quite lucky. That I started talking about it quite quickly. Um, again, lucky that I was in school and sort of, had the memorial assembly and people started asking me questions and it was it was sort of known I there wasn't a barrier that I had to overcome it was just sort of everyone knew so I was just going to be quite open about it 
I do consider myself quite fortunate with for the support I had. But yeah, I, I'm still dealing. I'm still processing a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not something that it goes away, and and it's not something I expect to go away anytime soon. But I'm okay with that. Like I'm just getting for it, working for it day by day. Still, I interviewed Professor Rory O'Connor a while ago, and who I'm sure you've yeah heard of, and and he just he was very interesting in the mindset of someone who who does want to kill themselves because you get to that point of feeling like such a burden and people think it's this hugely selfish act but in fact I look at sometimes people who take their own lives and think I think it's incredibly brave to get to that point and to have the courage and the I I just think it's it's an extraordinary thing and also we have to view it as it is a form of insanity your brain goes into that survival mode for a while and then it just it can't cope anymore yeah, I, I completely agree. And I guess this is why these sorts of conversations are so good, because a lot of the time suicide, I think, is taboo because people in our current healthy mindset, it's almost impossible to understand. And obviously, you know, it's it's very difficult because <laughs> when you're bereaved by suicide, you can't imagine what they're going through. So you start projecting healthy mindsets on the situation and, and suddenly it becomes because of stuff like, oh, they didn't love me or they didn't, you know, they didn't want to be around or they you know that you start creating the guilt in your head because you're looking at it from a place of sanity right and that's why I think it's so important that we have conversations like this and like with the people that are researching suicide and actually understand what it is like to be in that situation because you're right it's this is not this is not people (laughs) rationally deciding that they don't want to be alive anymore and these are people that have put up with a huge amount of pain for usually a very, very long time or are put into a situation where they cannot see any other way out. And actually, I think anyone that deals with suicidal thoughts and I've met so many people that have been suicidal and I've, I've spoken to so many people that are suicidal on, on Shout as a volunteer. They're incredibly strong people. Oh, so and so incredibly strong. I mean, to wake up and feel like that and then get on with your day and go to therapy and try, even for a little bit, it takes so much enormous amount of strength. I, I have a huge amount of respect for these for the people that do go through it. And I also have a huge amount of respect because it is still so stigmatized. It feels like we talk about mental health all the time nowadays, all the time. But people that are genuinely affected by mental illness and suicide, they get left out of the conversation. We talk about such surface level problems when we talk about mental health awareness in this current day and age. But people that have serious issues, they just get completely ignored by that conversation. And actually, I think the mental health conversation over the last decade has actually potentially alienated certain people even more than it did 10 years ago. Because if you don't fit into the, the attractive struggling with the mental health or trendy struggling with the mental health box then actually you become even more of a problem or an even more different and that's why it's so important that we try and learn about what these people are going to and what it feels like and yeah I think anyone that goes through mental illness anyone that feels suicidal anyone that's doing that in this day and age to put up with the stigma and to put up with the the thoughts in your head and to put up with all of that even for a little short time takes an enormous enormous amount of effort and strength and bravery um and and I guess that's that's where I feel sad because I look back and there were people that criticized Sam um, and criticized my family and, and had thoughts about that. And I'm like, you know, I, I, he was struggling for such a long time, bless him. Um, and you can't bring him back. So all I can think now is like, I really, really hope that he got peace from 
whatever he was going through because whatever he was going through must have been absolute agony and that's I guess where you, you've got to you've got to put your mindset in is I hope he found what he was looking for and you have to think like that yeah I've hit several rock bottoms in my life and definitely contemplated like I just want to end it all but to actively take the action to actually do it is just is another question altogether and as you said I think the problem we're encountering now is this over pathologization of mental health and it's become a sort of an attractive cool thing to Mm. say that you suffer with a mental health issue and actually I've had times when I couldn't leave my house and I like for months and months and months I couldn't speak to any of my friends and I remember one friend a few months ago she said to me yeah but it's just so bad like that people thought you were so weird and like people just thought you were just this complete freak growing up and they just treated you with such disdain and intolerance I always felt guilty for being that Mm. way and yet so turning it around to be like actually no it's pretty disgusting how people get treated and when you don't conform and you're not performing as a normal person your age should you're very very quickly put on the sort of the heap of oh god won't bother with her and as soon as you're sort of functioning ish again and you're up and running people flop back to you and it's human beings have this yeah yeah, and you see it all the time exactly your story you know whenever anyone comes out celebrities or otherwise comes out the press are like oh he's just doing it sell more records or or like you can make a bit of a moment or in school i remember comments like that all the time you'd have people go off sick with um a suicide attempt or or serious mental illness and it would always be attention seeking or so weak or so pathetic and actually you know to to be completely transparent I was one of those people I was I had that little understanding of it's laughable that I've become a mental health campaigner I remember saying that there's a a lovely lovely girl I went to school with called Alice and she had to take some time off for her mental illness for for a mental health break and um I remember saying to her face um, how pathetic it was and you're like I I was one of those people but I guess for me like that just drives home the importance of education here because I didn't know I just had no idea I had no idea and also I guess as a man there was this real expectation to be tough and I guess you can be tough by what you how you treat people that you perceive to be weak right and it just drives back to the campaigning stuff had I been taught about this I wouldn't have said that and I would have absolutely had a conversation with Sam and maybe Sam would have felt more comfortable at school if we were just taught more about this and you know that's what drives me because there's an enormous amount of guilt that I live with um that I'm processing but you know I should never have had the mindset of taking time off school as pathetic I should never have the mindset of being annoyed at Sam for suffering with a clinical illness but it was not my fault for thinking like that because I just did not know I had no idea what I was talking about I had no idea what I was saying and most kids don't know what they're saying when it comes to this because no one's told them what depression is it's just a fancy word people use right and I think that just it's so so important that we properly educate mental health and even now like we've made progress but it's so far from perfect Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. So tell me about your campaigning at the moment and how you're trying to educate people about mental health (laughs) my campaigning at the moment 
It's been a long, <laughs> a long, long journey. I've sort of got a few different things under my belt over the years that I've seen as issues. It is exhausting, especially the policy campaigning is absolutely exhausting. My first real one was a petition for teacher training, for mental health first aid as part of teacher training, because I think it's still an absolute joke that teachers aren't given mandatory mental health training to become a teacher I think it's an absolute joke how you can be expected to go into a school and teach lessons and even teach about mental health without any training on mental health is just it's a bit of a joke that was really my first petition and I guess I've sort of always felt that more needs to happen so most recently I've done I was involved in a campaign for universities trying to get a statutory duty of care for universities to protect students um, and have better protections for especially suicidal students because as it turns out there's no negligence laws in universities in the UK uh, it doesn't exist there a university cannot legally be held negligent in anything they do so we were trying to change that which was <laughs> absolute the most one of the most exhausting things I've ever done but it's in the supreme court now and there's it's going through parliament so fingers crossed in that in that sense and really it's I'm constantly thinking about what's the next thing, right? Do some work with Dr. Alex around schools. Um, I know we're, we're sort of rekindling the teacher training debate again. <laughs> My job is 90% talking to people and understanding what actually needs to change and probably 10% working out how to actually present that to government. And these things take so long. That's what's really frustrating, actually, is most laws take about eight to 10 years to pass. <laughs> so it's you've got to go in for the long run that is exhausting but it's so important so in terms of what I'm doing at the moment it is sort of just bubbling over those two things doing some work with with schools a lot of work uh, with companies trying to get staff mental health better workplace mental health better and launching a, a walk what I the first campaign I ever did was a walk relaunching that and so I can have real personal impact to people but honestly it's just whatever's going on you know whatever I can do to help push it because mental health can become a really complicated area but actually it's really really simple it's a really simple formula like we know exactly what solves all of this like we already have it the documents are there the research is there we know what we need to do to start solving this education prevention services support research we have it all there the formula is there it's just about someone knocking on the big black number 10 door and going, hello, this report exists or this is an area that we can do. Let's train our staff in mental health first aid. Incredibly cost effective thing to put forward. You know, they're spending so much money already training teachers, but actually they could move that money and train more teachers. That's what it's about for me is identifying where we can persuade the government to move funds so they're not necessarily spending more, um, but spending more intelligently to actually start ticking those boxes of the things we already know can solve all of the problems that we face in mental health area at the moment. Genuinely, when you start looking at it, it's really not difficult. No, it's so true. And as you say, that sort of teachers are now trained in how to prevent anaphylactic yeah. shocks. And that affects, what, 1,900 yeah. students a year? I love that stat. It's and so yet, bad, isn't it? And yet for mental health, which affects sort of, I mean, above yeah. and beyond, like, what, 190,000? Oh, um, yeah, they're trained in to treat anaphylactic shock, but I think it's 1,000 people, children, school-age children, get hospitalised a year for anaphylactic shock. And I think in the same time frame, Correct me if I'm wrong, but it was 19,000 19, yeah, exactly. admitted hospital for intentional self-harm or self-poisoning. And they're not trained in that. Mm -hmm. And you're like, well, firstly, 
this whole thing about let's treat mental health the same as physical health. I mean, come on, come off it. <laughs> you know, if we're training a whole sector of teachers for anaphylactic shock, rightly, because anaphylactic shock, we need that training in schools. We're training everyone to be able to help with anaphylactic shock. Why on earth are we ignoring the 19,000 children that are being admitted, admitted to hospital for self-harm or self-poisoning? I mean, imagine how unwell you have to be to be admitted to hospital because you've hurt yourself so badly or poisoned yourself and we're not training anyone to pick up on those signs and it's just like i mean it's just, like i said it's a bit laughable um yeah i mean it's not. so warped isn't it i mean and it and it's just a problem that's growing yeah so that's the issue is that you know the likes of you and i need to just do as much as we can to try and get this process accelerated really definitely and there is a lot of momentum, don't get me wrong. I mean, every year we get more and more people coming out and calling for it and joining the, can I say crusade then? That's a bit, yeah, well, it's it's a bit bold, crusade, I guess it is. Yeah. <laughs> and so the pressure builds and the momentum builds. And I mean, you know, let's face it, governments do what voters want and more and more and more voters realise that mental health is something that matters to them. And as soon as that starts to shift, then we're going to see more governments actually prioritising this, more than just the lip service that a lot of them give at the moment around meaningless conversations about certain things. You've also said something which I love because I use this analogy as well, that we're human beings, we're not human doings. And I think that's so often the case is that we need to teach children and adults. And I mean, if it's embedded at an early age, it's hopefully will last long and go into later life and be an incredibly useful tool but the ability to just be present and I actually was interviewing Amy Polly who again talks about mindfulness and and the actual you know the importance of recognizing like that we need to sit with our thoughts and we need to learn how to handle them as opposed to all the school's curriculum focus which is on achievement reaching these grades getting through school getting to university all these bars and yet we're not equipping children now with the tools that they need to be sane content adults oh absolutely absolutely it was actually my um counselor that, that told me that first because she was just like i was going through something and i was i was like but it's okay because i'm doing this and i'm going for a run i'm going and she was just like ben stop you're a human being not a human doing stop doing stuff to make yourself feel human and i was like mm, okay <laughs> but it's so true right and on that point about you know the stress that children are under gen z is one of the least risk-taking generations in recorded history it's the most perfectionist generation ever. You ask a room full of people how many people would describe themselves as having perfectionist tendencies, most hands are going to go up. We've bred an entire generation and many, many young people that think that they have to be best or good at everything they do. And so what that does is mean that people don't try things unless they know they're going to be good at it. And usually the things that people don't try are the things they actually enjoy. And so I'm a big advocate for just taking away any ability to be good at something. So for example, if you like running and running's your way of clearing your head, prove it and leave your watch at home right don't track your calories don't track your pace don't track where you're going or how fast you're going if you really love running and that's your way out then if you want to run for your head don't track anything or if you're painting and you find yourself getting angry about how uh, how your painting wasn't very good i'm useless at painting um then try painting with your mouth 
or try painting with your feet where there's no expectation for you to do well and suddenly you can just enjoy the process of doing something we've got these perfectionism tendencies placed on us where everything's a competition we have to be best at everything so when it comes to doing things being things trying to take away that pressure to be good and then being like meditation although if sometimes you can feel like you're not very good at that but just sitting there and being with your thoughts people used to tell me like oh you know you've got to feel your emotions feel your thoughts and I used to be like what the hell are you saying (laughs) what does that mean but really when you think about it when you feel angry or you feel sad there is something in your brain that is saying oh, this has happened, we need to feel sad about that. Or this has happened, we need to be angry. And the only way that feeling of anger is ever going to leave is when you're angry. That's why usually when you bottle up anger, it bottles up over time and then someone beeps at you at a traffic light and you just go absolutely mad at them in your car, right? Because it just overspills. So feeling those emotions and being a human being means just feeling them. So if you're angry, go and scream into a pillow or go and punch a pillow. Or if you're sad, go take yourself off and cry. Listen to, I don't know, like Adele and just go and cry, right? All it really means when we're saying just be is allow your body to do what your brain is telling you to do. Because the problems arise when we have the sort of intercept in that message that goes, oh, I'm not going to be angry. Angry is not attractive. I can't be angry. When actually what you really need to do is just go and beat a pillow <laughs> so true. rather than shout at the person that's beeped you in the car and get embarrassed about it <laughs> yeah and as you say i think you know feeling our thoughts without judgment yeah. and just being okay it's like you can have a bad thought you can have a crap day and it's just being okay with that because as you say we're breeding this generation of perfectionists and i definitely fall into that category but i'm learning slowly that it, it doesn't matter i can do something and it, i don't need to be the best at it like i don't need to be tim ferris because I've got a podcast I don't need to be Stephen Bartlett I don't need to be writing a book that sells like millions of copies it's okay just to do your thing in your corner and to find satisfaction and to find purpose and meaning in that thing that you're doing and I think that's that's a mistake that we're making is it's like it's it's doing these things that give us a purpose gives a direction and of course there are going to be ups and downs but I also think that our generation, the generation below particularly, are falling victim of this mindset that you know failure is this thing that needs to be avoided at all costs. And therefore, as you said, we've bred a generation of procrastinators because it's like you're too afraid to try the things that might bring you joy and they might not. But Also, everything's public. Like yeah. if you fail, you fail on a stage in front of all your followers. Like that's I think, is so different to the past. I think the real fear of failure now is the fear of failing publicly. Not many people mind if it's quiet failure, like they can just sort of brush it under the carpet. But for me, at least, talking from my experience, I'm scared of failing because everyone sees it. If you launch a podcast and no one listens to it, then it's public, right? Everyone sees, oh, that didn't do very well. Or if you go and, I don't know, have an exhibition with your art and you put it in your socials and no one turns up, that's embarrassing and failing publicly um, because everyone sees it. We're all on this stage. But on the point about, you know, trying new things and and trying to take the competition out of it. There's an amazing new series on Netflix about called The Blue Zones, I think, about all the oldest people in the world. And there's another great book called Ikigai, again, sort of about like purpose. And they talk and interview loads of old people, which I, I love hearing what old people have to say. It's cute. It's lovely. But they basically go around the world and they find what are the things that link all these old people? Why are they so happy at such an old age? And it's things like there'll be like 100-year-old men that are goat farmers in Sardinia. And you're like, they've got no stress. 
and their job is literally milking a goat. And if something goes wrong, then it's like, oh, onto the next goat. Like that's their level of stress. The level of stress is a goat gets ill. And you compare that to our lives at the moment where, oh God, I mean, you can't walk out the house or put a story up without feeling self-conscious or you can't, you can't do anything without some sort of level of stress. We are living in this pressure cooker of stress. I mean, all of us deal with chronic stress. We do. And more people need to try and find the goat farmer <laughs> um, sort of activity in their life that just goes, I can do this, I can do this privately, I can enjoy it, and I can just love what I'm doing, and there's no stress involved. And as soon as there's perfectionism and competition, there's stress. And I say to people, because I think this is one of the sad truths of the world we live in, not enough people know what gives them happiness, and not enough people know what they enjoy without stress it's one of the biggest challenges that we have to go and find that thing for me it is running I absolutely adore running again without a watch not feeling like I have to perform anything just going and running around a park and trying to find birds and not that kind not those kind of birds right that's a bit weird <laughs> I'm not that I'm not him at all <laughs> but trying to like look at the leaves look at the trees look at the uh the uh the animal birds and that's why I absolutely love <laughs> um but everyone needs to find that stress-free thing that brings them joy it's so true. And as soon as you take that thing that you might love to the extreme or you add competition to it, it's amazing yeah. how quickly it spirals into this vortex of just or imprisonment. How, and, uh, and then how can I make money? Oh, can I make yeah. a side hustle? Totally. Uh, and I feel like a lot of people fall into that trap. They find something they love, they're good at, and then they're like, oh, I can make money from this. And then suddenly you're getting to the end of Friday and you're like, oh, thank God, I don't need to do that for another two days. So yeah, find the thing that you love and you just need to have that embedded. And don't do it when you're feeling bad. Do it when you're feeling happy. Because habits are formed when you're in a good mental space, not when you're in a bad mental space. But no, I think that's something that everyone needs to find. Go for a run and find the birds. Exactly. Animal <laughs> birds. We can have that with. Yeah. And how are you encouraging children to find connectedness and to be social creatures? Because I think that's another issue is that it's this virtual life that oh, a, a lot of them are leading. I mean, you're ten, a decade younger than I am, but certainly for my generation, we're just on the cusp of that. So our, you know, our school life wasn't completely dominated by social yeah. media and having all these fictitious friends that were all virtual so how are we going to resolve that do you oh, think it's bizarre isn't it it's such a bizarre world tiktok i mean it's quite scary because i don't think it's going away and we are breeding a very lonely generation because socializing isn't a norm anymore you don't have to you've got social media which is a lot less intense if you are if you have got anxious tendencies it's really difficult to try and get through to people i guess you know, it starts with schools again. I feel like a broken record sometimes. It's like, oh, question. Let's talk about schools and education. But it's so important, right? Why do people feel so the need for social media, the need for attention on social media, the need for approval on social media? It's probably because they ha aren't getting it from somewhere else. So if we can try and teach healthy coping mechanisms and healthy behaviors from a young age and, and healthy ways of interacting with people, that's, you can't go wrong with that. That's not, It's not going to hurt anyone. I also think there needs to be massive regulation of um, social media sites. I think they should be regulated just as magazines and newspapers and TV is in the UK. I think it should be very, very rigorously regulated because we know the impact that it has on people's mental health, on people's health. We know that there have been deaths caused by social media. It's in the same way as taking a cigarette out of a packet and smoking it, it has health consequences and we are. it's largely unregulated. These are incredibly powerful organizations that are designing apps 
that are literally psychologically addictive and harmful and and can lead to death we need to regulate we need to but regulate and then pair it with education healthy coping mechanisms because we've introduced this pretty awful technology into some children's lives that is unregulated and is pretty awful i mean you see some absolute drivel on social media but you also see some really harmful content that goes pretty much unchecked it's so funny isn't it because we're such a weird animal human beings like we're just so weird like we've come up with this oh let's make life easier and then we get it done and we produce this new invention and then we're more ha- more unhappy it's like we've invented ourselves into unhappiness we can just sit there and have everything done for us and we're more unhappy than when we started and we haven't learned anything we're such weird animals <laughs> yeah we are and i mean as you say it's becoming a very harmful forum particularly yeah. for things like suicide you know giving mm. children ideas and I mean, I don't know whether this is your experience, but a friend of mine sadly also lost her brother. And the fir- one of the first things the police did was take away his computer yeah. to see what he had been looking at online. And, you know, it's terrifying what's oh, going on. And, and it's giving people, yeah, I mean, extraordinary yeah. ideas that you wonder whether they would actually have implanted within them had it not been for going on these these online chat forums. Mm-hmm. So I, I totally agree with you. I think it can be really toxic and, and just, yeah, like basically ingesting poison. Yeah. So I think that's something else that the government really needs to address and I feel very, very passionately about. But um, I'd love to leave the listeners with what was the most helpful thing that people did in the early days after your brother's death because I think that's, again, it's going back to the, the subject of suicide being so taboo. What is the most helpful thing friends and family mm. members can do? It's a really good question because people have no idea usually they're like i didn't know what to say i didn't know what to do and a lot of the time i get messages on dms being like look someone's died i don't know what to say my biggest advice to anyone and this goes for someone that's lost someone suicide or lost someone at all or is just struggling at the moment the absolute most important thing you can do is nothing and just be the person you were to them already obviously support them obviously send a nice message obviously don't do nothing but when Sam died, everything, every single aspect of my life changed. The last thing I wanted was suddenly my friends to change. So one of the things I remember so vividly was them taking me out on Wednesday. They We just bunked off school on Wednesday afternoon. They took me to Wagamama's and we had a normal meal. It was the first thing I ate and there wasn't mention of anything that was going wrong. We just laughed and had a meal. Um, that was three days after Sam died. I hadn't eaten anything until that meal. And I sat there and I had a great time with all of them. And it felt normal for the first time in three days. And I got home and I dropped them all off in my car. And I sat in my car and I cried because suddenly it was just like, I'm okay again. Like I'm going to, I'm going to get through this. A lot of people overthink it and get quite scared and feel like they have to rescue people and have to treat people and have to, you know, get someone through their grief. But you're friends with someone for a reason because you're intimate, you're close, you've got a relationship with them. And don't forget that. Be the normality. All I was so desperate for normal back in my life when everything was crumbling. And I'm never, ever, ever going to forget that moment in my car when I dropped them off of like, fundamentally nothing's really changed with the world I've still got great friends they're not treating me any differently I know they're there for me because they've told me they're there for me I've cried on most their shoulders in the days before that but they just took me out for lunch and just laughed and it was actually one of the most incredible things that anyone could have done no one in my life was laughing with me at that point you know I'd go home and it was silent dinners to just be given a lunch where we could just laugh and what's that thing you do in mcdonald's where you blow the straws at each other like just foolishness right and i just need it so badly so i'd say don't overthink it 
be the person you are to them already, whether that's a family member or a friend um, or even a colleague. Just be normal, but be there for them to talk to. And again, that's easier said than done. But really, all it means is actively listen. What's going on? Do you want to talk about it? Let's go for a coffee and then just let them, if they want to, let them say whatever they need to say um, and explore. Be a, be a bit of a detective right that's what you're trying to do come up with your little facts and try and do a bit of searching if they feel comfortable but fundamentally more than anything just be their friend because i'm never ever going to forget that lunch it was awesome it was so so nice well ben you're an inspiration and your energy and your just enthusiasm you're doing incredible things and i'm sure whenever you walk into a room of students you light them up and you know equally school students university students government panels <laughs> I'm all not these sure sorts of things select panel. committees civil <laughs> servants you name yeah, it thank you. but um thank you for all the incredible work you're doing and and thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today thank you so much for having me thank you for listening to this episode of the hurt to healing podcast i'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our hurt to healing instagram at hurt to healing pod You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation. So please spread the word. Mm